Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. So next up for lectures on Lacan, as you probably already know, is seminar 16. We're jumping from 14 to 16. And not surprisingly, some folks have been looking into seminar 16, particularly the first few pages, and have written to me asking basically what the fuck. These are crazy pages. Um, It's tough to make sense of them. Um, What's the story here? Um, So I think it's worth just taking a second before the series even begins and looking at these first few pages, um, I'm looking here potentially as a start on page four and then working back. It's really the first four to six pages before Lacan introduces Marx that he's laying out some things for us to consider. And it's not irrelevant that the start here is with structuralism. Here's what Lacan tells us though on page four. Do not be frightened. These are opening remarks. Reminders of certainties, not truth. And I would like, before introducing today the schemas from which I intend to start, so we're even before the start of this seminar, to mark that if something here and now ought to already be in the palm of your hand, it is what I took the care to write earlier on the board about the essence of theory. The essence of psychoanalytic theory is the function of discourse, and very precisely because of something that may appear new to you or at least paradoxical, that I am saying that it is without words. It is a matter of the essence of the theory because it is what is at stake. So if we take that as a starting point and then look back at the epigraph for the entire seminar, we see where Lacan has written on the board, the essence of psychoanalytic theory is a discourse without words. Now, if you've reviewed our materials on Seminar 14, you know exactly what he means by discourse. Um, But it's worth taking a second to work on this together now so that you have a sense of what he's doing with the very first operative word in this epigraph, discourse. What the hell does he mean by discourse? Now, it's commonly known that Seminar 16 marks this discursive turn in Lacan's thought, which is going to culminate in Seminar 17 with the four discourses. here, it's, it's worth focusing on what he means by discourse in this kind of preliminary stage. And remember, as Lacan puts it, we are at the beginning of the beginning, before the beginning, before he's even started the seminar, he has these opening remarks. Now, if you've read Lacan, you know that at the beginning and the end of his remarks is usually where most of the good stuff is. He usually tells you what's going on right up front albeit in a completely difficult, challenging, um, I am a poem sort of way. So let's look for a second at this notion of discourse. You see the epigraph, it's on page one of the unpublished English translation that we're working with here of seminar 16, a discourse without words. And then he immediately jumps from there into structuralism. And some publicist who lumps some people together encompassing them in a discourse known as structuralism. 
Lacan then goes on famously to play with the idea that this publicist, this work of publicity, is also like putting people together in a dustbin, containing them in a dustbin. And Lacan jokes that, you know, I've been around the block a few times, it's no big deal, top of page two. Um, I know what is involved in living with household refuse. So here what you have is a discourse, structuralism, that Lacan is toying with as a container, not unlike a wastebasket or a dustbin, that in this case contains refuse. And this is our first and foremost entry into what Lacan means by discourse. At this point, discourse is closely connected to language. It's closely connected to the big other. It's closely connected to the symbolic. What we learned in seminar 14 is that the big other does not exist. And what Lacan means when he says that is that it doesn't exist as whole, as total, as all-encompassing. There's always something missing from the big other. This is the reason why Lacan will say the big other doesn't exist, there is no meta-language, and various other bumper stickers. It's a set theoretical argument that he's making, and it's really quite simple. Containers are not among the things they contain. So there's a wastebasket right here, sitting next to my desk. The wastebasket itself is not among the refuse that is inside it. The container is not among the things it contains. Here you can see why Lacan, in this period, is fascinated with Russell's paradox, the set of all sets that do not contain themselves. And Lacan says that's not a paradox at all. Logically, it makes sense. You can just think right through that one. There's nothing paradoxical about that. Unless you're operating in the wheelhouse of philosophy, symbolic logic, then it suddenly is extremely problematic. Um, but here the first thing to note is, when Lacan says discourse, he means container. And his theory of the container, whether it's the big other, the symbolic, language, or a discourse, is that it's always missing something. The other is always barred for this reason. Something is missing from it. And in the famous bumper sticker that we've all heard before, what's missing from the big other is a big other for itself. There is no other of the other. Now, I'm playing with this idea, obviously, because of the title of this seminar, From an Other to the Other, <clears throat> but also just kind of riffing on this so that you'll have some of our notes from Seminar 14 top of mind here about what Lacan is doing with language and the lack of a meta-language. <clears throat> Immediately after this understanding of structuralism as a discourse, as a wastebasket full of refuse, which is not unimportant here, he shifts from this basket to philosophy, as if to say that structuralism, whatever this means, is not philosophy. If by this word, philosophy, he says on page two, there is designated a vision of the world. Now, already we are getting at what Lacan understands in this period to be the fundamental fantasy. The fundamental fantasy is that the other does in fact exist as whole, as totalizing. The fundamental fantasy is that wholeness is achievable. Completion can be rendered. That the big other, in other words, exists. And he says this is part of what philosophy gets into. 
if by this word there is designated a vision of the world, some outside perspective that would be able to take the entire world into itself and fully contain, totalizing as such, the world. Lacan doesn't want to be associated with that shit. He thinks that that is the fundamental fantasy of philosophy, which we're going to come to in a second, as to how this materializes around thought, all in the first four pages of what is the preliminary remarks on Seminar 16 that Lacan offers. Immediately on two after this, he dips into castration and says that this is the constitutive truth that psychoanalysis brings to the field here, this notion of castration. <clears throat> I don't think we need to spend a bunch of time on this. You can find this material discussed in other lectures in our series. Almost in every single one of them, we've got a section on castration. The things to note here are, in fact, the issue of no union of man and woman. Now, you've heard this phrase bandied about as well. The no union part is important. Prior to this, just a couple years before, Lacan is saying there is no universe of discourse. I've posted about this before on our Substack um, and also on Instagram. What he means by that is that there is no totalized, completely contained, coherent sense of discourse. And that's partly what he's working on here. There's always a disjunction. Something is constantly dropping out of that process. And Lacan wants to access that by way of castration. He wants to put that in terms of man and woman, which is just fine. We can come to that um, in future series, as I expect we will when we get to 19 and 20 especially. Um, right now, what matters is the no union part. Because as you move down on page two, don't get caught up in the bullet points. Don't get caught up in the man and woman business. Focus on the no union. Because then at the bottom of page two, we get an equivalence of kinds. No harmony. And then at the top of page three, we get this hooked back into the discourse of philosophy. Philosophy is always trying to harmonize thinking with itself. And what Lacan is here saying is that there is no union, there is no harmony, and this process is destined to fail. All right, checking back in here on this notion of philosophy as attempting to harmonize thinking with itself in a process that always fails. The discourse of philosophy, like all discourses, is leaky. There's always something that's dropping out from it <clears throat> that's fundamentally missing that renders that big other lacking. And the trick is to find where this lack is signified. Hence the famous signifier of lack in the big other that you see in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. And we're going to focus here briefly on this important paragraph in the middle of page three, where Lacan really zeroes in on this, if only to let us know once more that the unconscious is truly the object field of psychoanalysis. A rule of thinking that has to guarantee itself from non-thinking as being that which may be its cause. This is what we are confronted with in the notion of the unconscious. So you heard me in our series on Seminar 14 dip back into Lacan's critique of Descartes, which I assume you're probably pretty familiar with at this point. 
Um, you can review that, holler at me if you need, need access to those materials and I'll do what I can. Um, it's only in the measure of the beyond sense of remarks and not as is imagined and as the whole of phenomenology supposes from sense that I am as thinking. My thinking cannot be regulated, whether one adds or not, alas, as I wish. It is regulated. Now, the most important part of this, the really new element that Lacan is introducing here is it is regulated, which is going to connect in the next paragraph with his statement, it is raining. But for now, let's just focus on this notion of connecting philosophy with an attempt to harmonize thinking with itself. And what Lacan is here saying is that that harmony can't happen. There's always some cacophonous, um, discontinuous element that interferes in this process. And I think what we could say, agreeing with Alain Badiou here, is that philosophy is always caught in this dialectic between sense and nonsense, meaning and absurdity. Which is it? Coherence, incoherence. Philosophy is always working and trying to figure out and, and monitor the boundaries between sense and nonsense. And Badiou does a really good job in his lectures on Lacan of pointing out that there's a third element here. It's not just one plus one equals philosophy here. It's not just sense and nonsense. It's something is left behind by the disjunction between sense and nonsense, between knowledge and the unknowable, if you want to play it that way. This is neither sense nor nonsense, but what Badiou rightly refers to as absence. Ab meaning off. Um, away from. Um, absence, though, is not nonsense. And I think Badiou is precisely right. This is a very important distinction to note. Absence is the disjunction, or what's left of the disjunction between sense and nonsense, that is the very basis for the discourse of philosophy. So the discourse of philosophy, in other words, would suggest that if it can just wrap its brain around knowledge and the unknowable, sense and nonsense, that it will have a totalizing account, what Lacan earlier here on page two su suggests, a vision of the world. And what's missing from that, though, is the very disjunction, the very relationship between, or the non-relationship between um, uh, knowledge and, and the unknowable, sense and nonsense. And this is a third element, the relationship between sense and nonsense, the differential relationship between them that philosophy establishes, maintains, and monitors. That differential relationship is a third element that philosophers are oftentimes ignorant of. It is something that is absent in the discourse of philosophy. Um, this disjunction between sense and nonsense that is absent from their discourse, known as philosophy, Lacan refers to it on page three as a kind of intersense, something between sense, if you will. Now, he could be playing with the 
close relationship between um, sense and essence, interest, that's also at work here. Um, absence, nonsense, the sense part of this has its etymology in the verb esse, meaning to be. So just hold that in mind as we're messing with this here, because as you've heard me say, probably more than you prefer, um, there is an ontology of psychoanalysis, and it is a may-ontology because it deals with non-being, with a field of experience that is off and away from being, that is absent from the discourse of being known as ontology. Ontos being, logos, discourse about. Absent from the discourse of being, absent from ontology, is this other field, and this is going to be the field of psychoanalysis, the field of non-being, of may-ontology. That's kind of what Lacan is getting at here with the notion of intersense on page three. <clears throat> this is something that he says is beyond sense. And I don't know if I like that as much as absence in Badiou's reading of this and texts following this period in Lacan's thought. Um, if you like your Lacanian terms, this would be um, something that is <clears throat> extimate, something that is exterior to and intimate to the discourse of philosophy. It's a hole, if you will, in the discourse of philosophy that allows philosophy to operate. In fact, that's the important part here about Lacan's use of set theory, Lacan's understanding of containers, or in keeping with this discussion, discourses. The hole in discourse that renders it leaky, the same way that a waste bin can have a hole or crack in it, or a bag can have a hole in it, is not actually a subtraction of the value of the waste bin or the basket, but instead the very basis for its meaning, for its value. It doesn't mean it makes it more functional. It just means that the dysfunctional aspect of every totalizing operation is precisely what allows it to continue and perpetuate itself as a totalizing operation. This is why Baidu is the great inheritor of Lacanian thought, I believe, in part, because he fundamentally understands that the state, although it purports to seek a totalizing count of every entity in the world and so on and so forth, it works and sustains itself only by ensuring at a structural, logical level that that count is always incomplete. Because if the count were ever complete, there'd be no need for the state as a counting operation to do its thing. So there's always something more to be counted. And that's why in the field of identity politics that is so endemic to our world today, you have to be very careful about what you ask for. Is representation of your identity group exactly what you want? I can tell you it's exactly what the state wants you to want. It absolutely wants you to want to be uncounted but subject to the count that is its operation. So here we are working with this notion of discourse as a counting mechanism, pushing it in Badu's direction. What Lacan's going to say again and again is that there is this structural, logical inoperativity, a slippage of sorts, something that's constantly falling out from the process. Um, if indeed it's this attempt in philosophical discourse to harmonize thinking with itself, what we can see is that um, the 
the monkey wrench in this system is going to be the unconscious. Because we know that it's precisely where I think I'm thinking that I damn sure am not. And it's in fact where I don't think I'm thinking at the level of the body, at the level of the unconscious, that all of my greatest thoughts truly occur. So Lacan's going to turn this philosophical system on its head, but he's looking for this notion of the unconscious here as something that would be the cause and condition of possibility for thought itself. That's what he's doing on page three. And we're moving fast and loose here because this is an anticipation of what we're going to be up to in the series and just getting folks acquainted with the first few pages of this seminar, which are pretty damn daunting. The next paragraph that we come to is this notion of it is raining. And the key thing to note there is, where's the subject? Who's the agent in this sentence? What is the it in it is raining? I'm not saying I rain. Lacan moves very quickly through this only to say, baby, it is raining primary truths. It's an interesting move. Very interesting, quick move that he's making here. The being of thought is the cause of thinking qua beyond sense. Again, think of this as absence. Now, using this structure rejects any promotion of infallibility. And here we come to the key point at the bottom of page three. Lacan's understanding of structure, of discourse, of language, of the other, of the symbolic, we can keep adding to this list. And that, of course, is going to risk muddying several concepts, but it allows us to establish a baseline for Lacan's thought. If you accept his theory of the big other, namely that the big other doesn't exist, that it's always lacking, that something's always missing from it, the same way that the trash can itself is always missing from the contents that it has within it, then you have to allow for some fallibility in our understanding of discourse, of structure, of logic. Here, this structure rejects any promotion of infallibility. And notice Bruce Fink's move on this. Whenever you see phallus, think fallible. Those words are etymologically connected. The lexical history is there. Lacan's theory of structure of discourse is one that rejects any notion of infallibility. Completion, harmony, union. There is no universe of discourse. It is only helped precisely from the gap. There's that third element, that disjunction. That third element that proves that for Lacan, one plus one always equals three. And now we come to these elements that couple with this fallibility. There's a halting, stopping, defective, failing aspect. Something flawed is occurring at the top of page four. Notice how this disrupts the fundamental fantasy. The fundamental fantasy, as we learned in seminar 14, is, is, the, is the belief that, that wholeness can be acquired, that somebody somewhere knows all the answers, that the big other is this incredibly elaborate, coherent, cognizant, everywhere at once NSA. You start slipping in the, into kind of paranoid delusions here. Um, the truth, though, is that that shit doesn't exist. There is no omniscient, 
omnipotent, big other out there watching you. It ain't Colonel Sanders. It ain't Queen Elizabeth, even though she still lives on in Clickhole. It certainly is not the NSA. It's not aliens, as your um, very interesting neighbor might tell you. Um, this fundamental fantasy is shattered by Lacan's theory of the structure, of discourse, of language, um, which is always flawed, defective, purporting to be totalizing, but always missing something. <clears throat> this is what structuralism takes seriously, Lacan says on page four. It takes seriously the fact of knowledge as cause, as cause in thinking, and most usually it has to be said in a delusional perspective. If philosophy is the discourse that seeks a harmony of thinking with itself, and by extension some sort of view of the entire world, what Lacan is here going to tell us is that that is a delusional perspective. Delusional because it marks a fundamental fantasy, that you could somehow step outside and away from the world enough to get a holistic, totalizing, encompassing perspective on it. Which brings us back to where we started this little discussion. Do not be frightened. These are opening remarks. Reminders of certainties, not truths. And I would like, before introducing today the schemas from which I intend to start, to mark that if something here and now ought already to be in the palm of your hand, it is what I took the care to write earlier on the board about the essence of the theory. The essence of psychoanalytic theory is the function of discourse. Read dysfunction of discourse. And very precisely because of something that may now appear, may appear new to you, or at least paradoxical, that I am saying that it is without words. It is a matter of the essence of the theory because this is what is at stake. Now understanding a little bit about what he means by discourse, we can move to the question of what he means to have a discourse without words, and this being the essence of psychoanalytic theory. Now, there's a quick answer to this, and there's a longer answer to this. I'll give you the quick in order to push pause and move the discussion forward and say that I would guess that the without words, the discourse without words, would in fact be that of mathematics, or in Lacan's sense, the mathemes. The math themes and the formulas of Lacanian psychoanalysis mark a discourse without words that is the essence of psychoanalytic theory. All right, let's speed up a bit here. You've got this idea of a discourse without words being the essence of psychoanalytic theory. And you've got this other idea that discourse, like the big other, like the symbolic, like language, is necessarily, logically, structurally barred lacking, incomplete, which is how we get Lacan's claim at the start of 14 and also at the very start of 16. There is no universe of discourse. Why not? To review very quickly, it's as simple as this. Containers, again, are not among their contents. There is a structural logical lack here, and this structural logical lack is especially apparent when it comes to totalizing containers 
totalizing sets, containers and sets that purport to encompass all members of any given category. Now, all of this is from our series on 14, and we've got a couple of excerpts from that that you can access on Substack, Instagram, and the like, so we can leave it at there. Here's what you also have heard so far, though. You've also heard me say that this inherent dysfunction of containers, especially those that purport to be totalizing entities, is endemic to their form and function. Totalizing sets like language, discourse, the symbolic, and the big other, part and parcel of their operation is their inoperativity. And I would even say that this inoperativity is the condition of possibility for their function. Now, this is a move that Lacan is also keen on in the, in the mid to late 1960s. What we can add is this. It's at the level of the flaw, the defect, the failure, the gap, the hole in their container-like structures that we find the basis for these structures' operation, legitimacy, and endurance. What looks like a flaw, logical, structural, and otherwise, in other words, is in fact the most valuable feature of these entities. It's their most prized and protected attribute. And it's the site at which their true forms and functions await discovery. The idea here is that a leaky bucket can always hold more water and thus never exhaust its structural capacity as a container. That's worth hanging on to here. Here, the bucket is no longer a means to the end of water containment, transportation, and the like. But instead, it becomes, what I call in the chattering mind, a means without end, ever renewing its basic operativity by the sheer fact that it never quite completes its task. It's always dysfunctional at some basic level. Which brings Lacan to the mustard pot. You know that mustard pot. It's the mustard pot we encounter on page 5 of Seminar 16. It's not the first time we've seen it. If you've read Lacan, and he even mentions this, um, the mustard pot's been in the margins of other works by him as well. What makes a mustard pot valuable? Or if you're in the United States, it'd be like a mustard jar. We're talking about the thing in your fridge or wherever you keep it that has a lid on it and there's mustard inside, okay? He calls it a mustard pot, whatever. Um, its value depends on what's inside, right? It's the mustard inside that you pay for when you buy the mustard pot. That's what we'd say normally. In other words, that it's the contents of the mustard pot that make it valuable. And once these contents are gone, the pot, we would say, is worthless. Refuse. One more item for the waste bin. Now, on page 5 of Seminar 16, which I think is a brilliant move that Lacan is making, he says the opposite. He says that mustard pots take on their value when they're empty. Now, why is this? Because, and he is alluding to this, because it's only then that you can see that it's the label on the outside that distinguishes it as a mustard pot and nothing else. What marks it as a mustard pot 
is not what's inside, but the label that's on the front. And so you can think of, let's say, two identical doors. And above one is ladies and another is written gentlemen. Now you can take those labels and switch them. The doors remain the same. You don't know what's inside. What matters as the level of the signifier is what's above it. Here we're talking about mustard instead of ladies or gentlemen outside of ostensibly restrooms. There's more to this though. Lacan says that mustard pots take on their value when they're empty. Okay. But he says they take on even more value when they're broken. Now this is some wild shit to say, but part of what we do in this series is to try and learn to think this way. And so you could treat this as a thought experiment if you just can't bear the idea of an empty, broken mustard pot being the most valuable part of the mustard eating experience. Uh, Lacan's working on something here. Let's see if we can trace it out. It's even more valuable when it's broken, dysfunctional, or as Lacan puts it, hold, when there's been a hole punched through it. This is when the condiment container becomes most valuable. What the fuck is this about? This is wild stuff. Let me try and put it succinctly in anticipation of where we're headed here. It's only when the use value of the mustard pot breaks down and allows for some kind of otherworldly exchange value instead that we see some sort of an ultimate value popping up here. I'm not going to call it a surplus value yet, but I want to say there's like an ultimate value. This is what Lacan is suggesting right at the start of seminar 16. So I want to spend some time looking at this. Check it out. Page five. If yours looks like mine, something like this. There was a time, allow me a little interlude before getting into this domain, when I took the example of the pot, not without there being such a scandal that I left this pot, as I might say, in the margin of my accrue. What was at stake was the fact that the pot is, in a way, the tangible image that it is the meaning modeled that it is this meaning modeled by itself thanks to which manifesting the appearance of a form and content it allows there to be introduced into thinking the idea that it is the contents that is the meaning as if thinking showed here this need to imagine itself as having to contain something else for this is what the term to contain designates when it is highlighted with regard to an inopportune act. Note the play here with contents and container. We're still on point. The pot. And I called it mustard in order to remark that far from necessarily containing any, it is precisely because it is empty that it takes on its value as a mustard pot. Namely, that it is because the word mustard is written on it. But mustard, which means that there is much delay, and there's the French play on mustard that you may have encountered in secondary scholarship on this. 
For this pot, before it reaches its eternal life as a pot which begins at the moment when this pot will be hold. So the idea that there's some delay here and this French expression captures something about the increasing lack of use value that Lacan wants to suggest with the mustard pot. This much delay would be like going to somebody's house for lunch. Y'all are eating sandwiches or whatever. And after lunch, there's some kind of dessert, perhaps. And it's only then that the host shows up with the mustard for the sandwich. The mustard has arrived to the table with such a delay that it's no longer useful to the event of having lunch at this person's house. The mustard is late. And in becoming late, its tardiness renders its uselessness. Because it's under this appearance throughout the ages that we find in digs, namely by searching in tombs, something that will bear witness to us about the state of a civilization. The pot is hold. It is said as a homage to the dead person and so that the living person can make use of it. Of course it is a reason, but there is perhaps another one, which is the following. It is that this whole is intended to produce, so that this whole produces, illustrating the myth of the deny. Now, what are we working at here? If you know the myth of the deny, and it's a terrible curse, you would never want to curse this on somebody, but here's the idea, is that you're condemned to transport water from one place to the next, but you're only given a leaky bucket. The example is of a, of, a, of, a, of a sieve or something like this, something that water just pours right through. And your job is to transport water from point A to point B. But obviously, if you've got a leaky bucket or a sieve or something like this, by the time you get the water in the thing and start walking, by the time you get to point B, the water's all gone. And so you got to go back and get more. That's partly what he's working on here. It is in this state that this pot, when we have resurrected it from its burial place, occupies a place of honor on the shelf of the collector in this moment of glory. So what you're seeing here is the pot is emptied, broken, because a hole is being punched through the bottom of it. And it's there at the level of the dysfunction of the mustard pot that it starts to take on value honor, glory, it becomes collectible for just as much as for God. So now it even has a divine important. It is in this glory that it reveals its nature. The nature of the mustard pot is revealed in the glory that it can now attain because it no longer works. It no longer functions. It's been broken. It can't hold anything. Certainly not a condiment like mustard. It doesn't mean it'll ever find new contents. It just means that its use value as a container for the content, the condiment known as mustard, has disappeared. It's gone. The structure of the pot, I'm not saying it's material, appears there as what it is, namely correlative to the function of the tube. So here's another turn that Lacan's taking. So you've got 
a mustard pot that's emptied, hold, now has some sort of divine, glorious opportunity, and now can also be understood as a tube, right? You've got a mustard pot, there's an opening at the top, you've hold the bottom of it, so Lacan's suggesting that there's some sort of a tube-like structure here with an opening at the top and an opening at the bottom. And here's this move he wants to make. What we're working on here is no longer a mustard pot, but a tube, a drum. And if we're going to search for pre-formations in nature, we will see that for a horn or a shell, it is still there after the life has been extracted from it, that it shows what its essence is, namely its capacity for producing sound. Now, this is a wild move. It's part of what makes the opening pages of Seminar 16 so daunting, is this riff on the mustard pot that now has become a horn, a shell, a, a two-opened cylinder, a tube that can be used as a drum or something else for producing sound. Here the mustard pot is revealed as something vascular, no longer something to be stuffed with a condiment, in other words, filled, but instead something that is hold, perforated with an opening that can transmit sound, air, instead. It's gone from a condiment for your sandwich to sound production. The moves here are interesting, to say the least. Remember where we're headed in the direction of Marx. And let's see if we can take this a step further. But also to get us back to something really basic in psychoanalysis. And that is the analyzans speech. The same is true of mustard pots as Lacan is working it here. We might say that that's also true of empty speech, of analytic experience. It's where my speech and action fail, where they start to slip, stutter, stammer. It's where dysfunction appears in speech and action, that the truth of who and what I am all about can be discovered, disclosed, and if done well, resubjectivized. Just pause and think about this for a second. It's always on broken ground, not hard-packed soil, that seeds to be sown are planted. Hold this in mind as we move forward past page six right now in Seminar 16. All right, moving past page six in Seminar 16. Uh, you know what? And just when you think you got the crazy out of you with the mustard pot, along comes Marx. It's precisely after Lacan introduces this mustard pot that he turns to Marx. Now, remember what's happening with the mustard pot and the relationship between its use value to you as a consumer of, I don't know, stuff that has mustard to go with it, and its exchange value in this kind of otherworldly system where mustard pots are whole, filled with special things, and put in a tomb buried with your ass. You never thought you'd be buried with a mustard pot, but here you go. You're going to get buried with a mustard pot, and you'll be damn happy that it happened that way, because it'll be stuffed with amazing things. This is what you see on page six, too. Precious materials, perfumes, gold, incense, and myrrh, all of these things 
are stuffed into broken mustard pots, which are then put in tombs and then dug up hundreds, thousands of years later by archaeologists. The pot explains the meaning of what is there by virtue of what, Lacan asks. By virtue of a use value, let us rather say of an exchange value with another world and another dignity of a token value, that it should be in pots that we find the manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls is something to make us sense that it is not the signified that is within, it is very precisely the signifier. Even and especially when the label mustard has worn off the exterior, it doesn't mean that you have a lack of signifiers and they're signifying the meaning and all blah, blah, blah is inside. No, what's inside is in fact the blah, blah, blah. It's another round of signifiers. Here, it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we're back to the topic with which this thing began. And it is with that that we have to deal when it is a matter of what is at stake for us. Namely, the relationship between discourse and word in analytic efficacy. Let's not trip on that right now. Let's just back up for a second and talk about value. Exchange value, use value, because eventually we're going to get surplus value. And you can see on page six, as soon as he's done with this discussion, it's on to marks. Let's check this out and see what happens. Lacan wants to say that beyond use value, beyond exchange value, is surplus value. And it's here that his attention really focuses. So we don't need to spend much time on use value. Use value is the value that something has in its utility. The use value of this glorious coffee mug is in its ability to help me have a drink of coffee. The exchange value is how much I had to pay to have one of my cats put on the front of it. And don't mess around. There's the other one right there. I got both cats on a coffee mug. That shit wasn't free. I had to pay for that. I had to exchange my hard-earned dollars to get this amazing coffee cup in return. That's the exchange value. How much do you have to pay to get this coffee mug onto your desk? It can be exchanged for money. So that's use value and exchange value, roughly speaking. Let's focus on surplus value, as Lacan would have us. What the hell is it? Surplus value is the difference between the production cost and the sale price of any given entity, coffee mugs and otherwise. If an item sells for more than it costs to make, the capitalist turns a profit. And if it costs more to make the item than the capitalist can sell it for, that motherfucker takes a loss. So surplus value is the difference between how much it costs to make something and how much it can be sold to someone else. So 
let's say this coffee mug, it was a gift. I don't know how much it cost. Let's say it was a $20 coffee mug. How much do you think it costs to produce this mug? $2? $3? Now, it's not just the materials that go into this. There's also the labor of its production. There's the maintenance of the machinery and the housing for that machinery that would allow for the production of coffee mugs. There's also some sort of a transportation cost because this thing has to be shipped. It has to be packed. There's boxes. There's all kinds of stuff. You also have to pay the person that does the digital work. You have to pay the person to host the website where whomever gave me this gift probably found that and threw images of my cats up there and stuff like that. So there's a lot that goes into the cost to produce an item. But the wager of surplus value and the wager of the capitalist is I can still sell it for more than the totality of those production costs. All things considered, end to end, door to door, this coffee mug may be, I don't know, 10, 15 bucks, but it sells for 20 or 25. The surplus value is that 10 bucks or so that the capitalist gets to take as profit in this example. Now, already, when we start moving into discussions of profit, deficit, gain, and loss, because again, if it costs less to produce than you can sell it for, you make a profit. There's your surplus value. But it can also go in the opposite direction. You can fuck up and spend a lot of money making something that'll only sell for a fraction of the cost it took to produce it. Now you're dealing with a deficit. Now you've got a loss. Lacan wants to say these all are in the field of surplus. Now, if you've got ears to hear, you can notice that Lacan is already starting what he would go on to define as a basic operational logic of discourse, be it the discourse of a master, a hysteric, an analyst, or yours truly, a professor. Namely, the way it always results in a gain or a loss. Discourse always results in a gain or a loss. There is a production or a deficit that results from a discourse. So if you can remember the discourse of the master, the kind of foundational discourse that Lacan starts working with in his next seminar, or just the basic structural logic of the discourse where you have an addressor speaking or addressing someone else, an addressee, and then there's a production. Something is generated from that interaction. The master tells the slave to bake a cake. The cake is what's produced. There's a productive process. Now that production can result in a gain or a loss. Lacan is keen on this too. Here's what he wants to add. These gains and losses are typically for someone's enjoyment. The question here at this point, if only to be posed now and answered later, is whose enjoyment? Who gets to capture the surplus enjoyment that comes with a gain at the level of profit? And who gets to capture surplus enjoyment at the level of loss?
namely in the field of deficit. There's a lot to say about surplus. We're going to come back to it. We're going to talk about the etymology. We're going to chart this thing. We're going to get to the bottom of surplus so that we've got a pretty good understanding of what Lacan is here doing with the word surplus. Um, there's also this other term, though, that I just threw out, which is enjoyment. Enjoyment's a technical term. And it's one of these terms in Lacan's work that permutates and transforms as his thought develops. So you can check out, for instance, Miller's essay, Paradigms, and you can see all the different ways that Jouissance has transformed. He, he identifies six. Terrific. It's, it's, it's a pretty good piece, actually. It's got a lot of really great insights. Um, it's got a few errors, though, too, that I would like to return to um, as we get going here. But for now, I think it's important to just note that enjoyment is a technical term. It's one that Lacan worked on throughout his career, and it's one that has had a shifting meaning. Miller identifies six. I'm not sure there are that many. But you can see this term changing as Lacan's thought develops. So anything you hear me say about enjoyment now, it might be hooked into one particular area of his thought. The question we might ask is, what does enjoyment mean for Lacan here in the late 60s? For now, though, let's just take a zoomed-out perspective here. First and foremost, enjoyment ain't pleasure. Pleasure to keep it basic, is like eating until you're full, with or without mustard. Enjoyment is overeating. Getting to that point where you start to feel a little uncomfortable. And then maybe working out like a demon the next day. Which may be, according to you, because you deserve it. Maybe you earned that brutal workout. Maybe it is the just and only dessert for the meal that you overconsumed. Pleasure is about comfort, ease, repose. It has a right-sized normative relationship to objects, to commodities. Enjoyment is excessive. It goes beyond pleasure. It's often tinged with discomfort. In the case of the overeating that produced the intense workout. Notice how you feel after that workout. You are sore as hell. And you like it. That groan when you get up after doing a great workout earlier that day or the following day. Yeah, it hurts. But it hurts so good. Pleasure is acceptable. Even advised. And for that reason, it's inhibited. Enjoyment in this very basic preliminary introduction to the topic is intensive. It marks an, an effective intensity at the level of your body. And as you heard me say, there's something excessive about it. Pleasure is an inhibited experience structured and sustained, monitored, conditioned by normative rules of law and order, society and the like. There's something excessive about enjoyment. 
There's a beyondness to it, a beyond normativity that comes with it. Now, that doesn't mean that every approach to enjoyment has to be based on the transgression of normative laws and orders. That's a certain approach to enjoyment. And in Seminar 7, you see Lacan pretty hot on this topic. Enjoyment as transgression. That's definitely not the only way to enjoy. So hold in mind, before you make too many moves from here on enjoyment, that we are just getting started. Let's keep it basic still, maybe even more basic, and ask a question. What makes enjoyment excessive? Well, if you've tuned in to this series before, you've probably heard me say what I'm about to say again. Let's review. Society is founded on laws. All laws are effectively prohibitions. They amount to thou shalt not. Think Ten Commandments. And all prohibitions, societal and otherwise, if you could even imagine a prohibition that is not functionally societal, I'd like to hear from you. Let me know what that is. All these prohibitions that are equivalent to the laws that are the structuring elements of society are prohibitions against enjoyment. So much so that I think it's fair to say that the basic law of society is enjoy as little as possible. You can pursue pleasure and happiness. Jefferson knew that as far as you want to go. Oh, but when it comes to enjoyment, enjoy as little as possible. Now, this is, of course, why it's so profitable for companies to promise consumers that their products are going to yield enjoyment. And also why it's so damn difficult to enjoy when we are commanded to do so. From Ecclesiastes to island vacations, it's when you are supposed to enjoy, excessive, uninhibited, that we really struggle and fail. That's why the commandment to enjoy is fundamentally sadistic. It's a commandment from the superego. It's a commandment that we cannot live up to, and as a result, feel like shit. We never enjoy the vacation as much as we're supposed to. Valentine's Day always disappoints because it's supposed to be this exuberant expression of love and so forth. Events where enjoyment is commanded, demanded, expected, are usually letdowns because we can't live up to that expectation. We can't. Because our basic structure as subjects within a society is to have renunciated our access to enjoyment. We'll come to that in a second. Lacan's wager here is important to note, though. And we're right on the verge of it. And at this point for Lacan, it's just a wager. Here it is. Renunciations of enjoyment, the same renunciations that society requires at the level of laws, as prohibitions, as prohibitions against enjoyment. These renunciations of enjoyment 
are always weirdly opportunities to enjoy. Let's think through this, even if only tentatively at this point. Renunciations of enjoyment always somehow result in more, not less, enjoyment. Let me put it a little differently. Somehow we manage to access more enjoyment by allowing ourselves less of it. Hell, we even know how to enjoy our renunciations of enjoyment. Think about the last time you saw somebody get off on an abstaining relationship to, I don't know, ice cream, crack, sex. Now, there's something intuitive about all this. I think there might be something more here, but there's also something really basic and understandable about this. <laughs> Consider, for instance, a first date. I don't know about you, but first dates, you're wearing uncomfortable clothes. The conversation is restrained. You never quite get enough food. And there's even less sex to go around on a first date. Ah, but then when it's done, when you get home, whether you're disappointed or not, excited about the next date, whatever the case may be, when you get home after that first date, what is the first thing you do? You put on your pajamas. You eat a whole pizza. And then you masturbate fiercely. All while watching, I don't know, reruns of law and order uh, until you start to loathe humanity. So you have here at the level of the first date a renunciation of enjoyment through the experience of going out with somebody that in turn conditions a kind of explosion of enjoyment when you get home. And it's excessive in every single way. I don't know if putting on pajamas is excessive, but you might say eating a whole pizza is excessive. Probably going to make you feel overly full. Masturbating fiercely. I didn't just say masturbating. I said fiercely. That strikes me as perhaps a little bit excessive. And then, you know, Law and Order. If you've got Hulu, baby, you know they got every episode of Law and Order, 35 seasons of 90 episodes in each, and they just play dun -dun, back to back. Throw on SVU in particular, and the loathing of humanity that will come out, the disgust that you'll have when you crawl into bed that night. That's a kind of enjoyment. Lacan refers to this type of enjoyment as surplus enjoyment. And he starts this work on page seven of seminar 16. No newer than labor was in the production of merchandise is the renunciation of enjoyment, jouissance, whose relation to labor I do not have to define any further. We'll come back to that in a sec. Since from the beginning, and quite contrary to what Hegel says, or seems to say, it is what constitutes the master who clearly intends to make of it, surplus enjoyment, the principle of his power. What is new is that there is a discourse 
that articulates this renunciation and which makes it appear, and which makes appear in it, for this is the essence of the analytic discourse, what I would call the function of surplus enjoyment. This function appears because discourse occurs, because what it demonstrates in the renunciation of enjoyment is an effect of discourse <clears throat> itself. It's a terrific little passage, and it puts us on call for this notion of surplus enjoyment. All right, surplus enjoyment. Clearly, it's connected to labor, at least to the workplace. We have expressions for this, work before play, and so many other euphemisms about how the renunciation of enjoyment is somehow crucial to the modern experience of labor. Of course, followed by a weekend, supposedly filled of enjoyment, followed by another week's worth of labor, followed by another weekend worth of enjoyment. You can look at the seven-day uh, week and, and make sense of this in terms of work and play. Uh, <clears throat> but let's just take a second here. Labor is not the same as work. I don't want to conflate them. Um, Hannah Arendt is, is terrific on this topic, by the way. Work at least yields a product. When you work, you have something that is the result of that work. The painter works at the production of a painting that can then be hung on the wall, experienced, hell, maybe even enjoyed. But labor, unless we're talking about maternity wards, labor yields nothing for the laborer except more of the same, namely labor. This is Arendt's big distinction between labor and work, by the way. Work results in a production of something. There's something enduring that survives the process of work that is out there in the world that the worker can then see. Labor, however, the laborer cannot look at a product and say, ah, I made that, whether they feel pride or disgust. Um, they're just putting one spoke in a wheel over and over and over and over again. It doesn't mean they're making bicycles. It means they are just putting a single spoke in one of the wheels that will eventually go into the production of a bicycle. <clears throat> what they get out of this is not the satisfaction of seeing their work in the world the same way that the bondsman will survive the Lord in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. No, the only thing the laborer gets from this is just more labor. Who gets to enjoy, then, the fruits of the laborer's efforts? The factory owner, the shareholder, in short, the master. But Lacan, again, note the move here, he wants to talk about discourse. It's the discourse around this whole production that captures his attention, particularly language use. If the condition of possibility for language use is a renunciation of enjoyment, one of its primary effects 
is the return of enjoyment in bits and pieces, fits and starts, as surplus enjoyment. That's important here. The bits and pieces of enjoyment that return as surplus enjoyment after a renunciation. In this passage on page 7 we were just reading, it ends by saying that the function this function appears because discourse occurs. Because what it demonstrates is the renunciation of enjoyment, as the, in the renunciation of enjoyment, is an effect of discourse itself. Now, if you scroll down a little bit to the last line on page 7, you get one step more. A discourse must be pushed very far to demonstrate how the surplus enjoying depends on stating is therefore produced by discourse so that it appears as an effect. But in fact, this is not something very new to your ears if you have read me. Surplus enjoyment is an effect of the renunciation of enjoyment that is an effect of living in a discursive world. A world, if you've got ears to hear, in which we're castrated, in which we suffer symbolic alienation, a world in which we occupy the field of the other. The question is, what are we to make of this return? Discourse is premised on the renunciation of enjoyment. And it also conditions the return of enjoyment in fits and starts, bits and pieces, as surplus enjoyment. What are we to make of this return, this repetition of sorts? It's one of the key questions here at the start of Seminar 16, and exactly where we're going to turn to next. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.